why is biomedical science different and sticking with the old ways and the old ways that have so many drawbacks, ethical and scientific? This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howey, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. A lot of animals are tested upon and killed in the name of science, particularly biomedical research. In conversation, many people will adopt a utilitarian attitude. The lives and deaths of these non-human animals is to benefit human health. They say it's an acceptable trade-off. But what if it wasn't benefiting human health? And what if, before the experiments even began, there was a solid chance the research would never, ever have human applications? Those are some of the questions being posed by the Center for Contemporary Sciences, a new organization that is, quote, pioneering a paradigm shift towards innovative evidence-based research methods that are based on human biology. Through collaboration, we champion technologies that are better for humans and that replace animal testing. Dr. Jared Bailey, Director of Science and Technology at the Center for Contemporary Sciences, joined Defender Radio to discuss the current state of animal testing and why it continues to fail. The results of a just-published paper following up on so-called breakthroughs using animal testing in decades past and we even get into the use of squalene in COVID vaccinations and animals being tested on during a pandemic. Some of the content of this episode may be upsetting to listeners as we do discuss animal testing. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the CCS without listening to this episode, please visit contemporarysciences.org. Defender Radio is supported by AnimalStone.com. Purveyors of luxury, animal-inspired jewelry, AnimalStone.com is a family-owned, woman-run business based out of Toronto, Canada. Born of a shared love and respect for animals, wildlife, and a deep commitment to the planet, Animal Stone's hand-designed jewelry is the perfect gift for any animal lover. Not only are the individual pieces beautiful and meticulously crafted from often recycled metals, but frontline conservation work is funded through every sale. Check out AnimalStone.com and use promo code DefenderRadio for 10% off your order. That's AnimalStone.com and promo code DefenderRadio. So the Center for Contemporary Sciences is a relatively new organization. Um, and I'd love to hear the state of things, because I think this is a, a it's a very specific issue. And I've I, I, as I've said in our emails, I know a little bit about it, but I think people don't understand the scope of what's going on in how scientific testing is taking place. Uh, so if you want to take a minute and maybe just give us sort of that top-down bird's-eye view of what is happening in research, in academia, uh, and why is there a need to change that? Okay. Um, what I'd like to do, if it's okay, is, is start with how I became interested in in what's going on and, and, and how things are now changing. So my, my background is in genetics. My, my degree and my PhD were in genetics. And uh, I then spent seven years in academia uh, researching premature birth and why, why women, human, human females, um, why women had premature babies if there was a genetic factor to that. And I used um, human tissue from, from the hospital um, uh, where I worked, and I grew human tissues in the lab to see what, what was going on. 
And I'd always had I'd always had an ethical issue with animal experiments. It wasn't, you know, I turned down PhD positions because they couldn't guarantee that that I wouldn't have to use animals at some point. But I then started to get a more of a scientific interest in why people were using animals in science and, and in particular, why people who were researching the same thing that I was researching were using animal models, whether it was um, mice or monkeys or sheep or th th there was all sorts of things. And people that use different models got different results that really conflicted with each other. And ultimately, we were trying to, to learn about a human issue. What, why are premature babies born, premature human babies born? So why would you use an animal model? So um, after that seven years, I, I then decided this is something I wanted to do for, you know, for, for my career. So I've spent the last 15 to 16 years looking at animal use in science because a lot of people don't realize that that really a huge amount of, of biomedical research, research into human diseases and why they happen and how they happen, uh, what we can do about them, finding uh, you know, new drugs and treatments and therapies and testing them and getting them onto the market. A huge proportion of that is, is using animals. Uh, there are uh, around 200 million animals a year used globally in scientific research and testing. And, uh, you know, that, that includes, it includes cats, it includes dogs, it includes monkeys, until very recently, uh, mainly in the US, it, it involved chimpanzees. So a lot of people have ethical issues with that, but some reluctantly accept it because they think it's a scientific necessity. So that's what I have spent the last 15, 16 years looking at. Is, is it a scientific necessity? Do animal models have enough human relevance uh, to make that good science? Do they predict human biology? Do they predict the course of human diseases? Uh, do they predict uh, how new drugs uh, are going to work and, 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 and how safe they might be when human beings take them? And I've published um, lots and lots of papers and book chapters over those years, dozens of them, um, on many, many different fields, cancer, uh, the use of genetically modified animals in, in research to, to, to make better models, the use of monkeys in, in neuroscience, you know, studying brain function and neurodegenerative diseases like, uh, like Alzheimer's and many, many different, different areas of science. And invariably, uh, my findings have been that animal models are poor in, in almost every area in which they've been used. So that's, that's a kind of empirical objective finding. But we now know why animal models are poor. And it's because, speaking as a geneticist, there are lots of genes that we don't share that are unique to species. And even when we do share genes, those genes do subtly different jobs. They're, they're differently expressed in our bodies. They, they, they do different jobs, different ways. They interact with, with different things in our bodies. And that really, really matters. And it particularly matters in things like the metabolism of new drugs or things that might be toxic to us. Um, and in the function of our immune systems, which are obviously of crucial importance for, for infectious disease, you know, like, like the virus that causes COVID, for example. So, so we know that animal models are failing in lots and lots of ways. Um, and we can talk about some examples of that later, if you like. We know why they're failing because of genetics differences in gene expression. 
So I, I think that argument can stand alone. We, we really shouldn't be doing this because it's just not good science. And we, it, it might have seemed like it decades ago because we all had lungs and eyes and ears and, and limbs and, and so on and so forth. But we now know drilling down into molecular biology and how our genes and proteins and enzymes and everything that keeps us alive work, how our nerves work, how our heartbeats and so on, there are differences. So, but the, the point is that um, there are other better things we can do. There are other better things that science should be doing. And some of these things are techniques that, that really scientists like myself could only have dreamed about even, even 10, 15 years ago. And these are a kind of doing what I did in the lab, growing human cells to do experiments on but instead of growing them in, in, in what are called monolayers, just in flat layers in, pl in plastic flasks, scientists are now growing human cells in three dimensions and in, in so-called um, organoids. They're kind of tiny, tiny uh, microscopic little mini organs. And we can grow beating human hearts. We can grow um, uh, tiny uh, tiny pieces of human liver that function like human livers. We can grow pieces of, of functioning human kidneys, of, of mini human brains that have neural activity, uh, mini lungs, and so on and so forth. We can also pattern these three-dimensional cultures of human cells and tissues onto to glass chips, um, and, and they can be the size of, of a smartphone. And sometimes you can have um, organ chips, or sometimes you can have body on a chip. So you can have, you can have uh, a liver, a human liver, a human kidney, a human lung, a human heart, um, human pancreas, human gut, human brain, and you can have them all connected with kind of artificial blood, a circulatory system. You can have lung cells moving like they're breathing. You can have uh, mini human um, hearts that are uh, that are beating and so on. So they they have. The, that physiological environment that they have in the body, uh, that kind of stretch and stress and movement and fluid flow and, and so on and so forth. And these are the technologies that are allowing us to really do research in the most hu with human relevant way that we've ever been able to do it. And let me be clear, it's always been more human relevant than using a whole animal, but this is, we're, we're on another level now with these technologies. So I've, I've gone on for a very long time. I'll finish off and let, and let you ask me some questions. But so um, a number of, of experts got together earlier this year at, at Harvard and had a conversation and, and it went along these lines. We've had these technologies now for a few years. They've improved in, in so many ways and, and so, so much in such a short space, space of time. And they're continuing to improve they are demonstrably better and more human relevant. And yet, even though science is changing, moving the focus to some degree away from this, these 200 million animals a year that are used in science and towards these new methods, that shift isn't happening as much or as quickly as the evidence demands it should be happening. And that shift needs to happen more urgently and more quickly, not just to, for the benefit of the 200 million animals a year that are, are being used in labs and, and suffering in labs, but for us, for human beings, because we are kind of peering in the shop window, looking over the fence saying, 
where are these amazing cures for cancer we've been promised? Why, why are we still struggling to understand Parkinson's and Alzheimer's diseases, uh, motor neuron disease? Why, why, uh, why are scientists realizing that they've been wasting their time for year upon year on models of, uh, of Alzheimer's, of sepsis, of all sorts of things in, in drug testing where there's a greater than 90% failure rate as you move from animals into humans. What, why, why is this still going on? Why, aren't, why isn't there a greater shift towards the better scientific methods that already exist? And I've, I've, I've been to conferences and participated in panels where scientists from many different fields have discussed this. Why isn't good science, why isn't better science enough to make this shift happen? And there are lots of reasons for it. But in a nutshell, the Center for Contemporary Sciences was born because of that concern, because of the appreciation of that need, the urgency with which we have to move for the sake of, of all lives, animal and human, we have to move from science that focuses on using animals towards science that does better science, not just humane science, but more human relevant science using these advanced methods and computers and all sorts of other things I've talked about. We need to do that as a matter of urgency. And we, even though we've just been in, um, in existence for a few months, we're already talking to, to academic groups, to uh, industry groups, pharmaceutical industry, chemical industry. We're planning educational programs to connect with, with early career scientists and to, to enthuse them and to, to, to kind of fast track them into these fields. Um, and, and many, many more things to, to try and realize this change uh, at a pace that the, that the evidence demands. So we and all the people we're speaking to are, are very, very excited about that. And, uh, and so we should be because these, this change, this sea change that is so necessary and that we are capable of is extremely exciting. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's very, very promising and, and we need to do it as a matter of urgency. Well, and it is exciting. And I think it's, it's, you've, you've made a very clear, decisive case that the methods we are currently using. So the animal based research for human application isn't working nearly well enough. Yes. Um, it's just not getting done. And we're also saying that, um, you know, we're killing millions of animals without a need. And the science is very, very clear. And I guess, and this, you, you sort of talked a little bit about this, but I'm going to ask you to go more into it. Mm. One would presume that in the scientific community, if someone says, hey, I've come up with a better way to do this, people would kind of jump on board with that. Um, and you would suddenly just maybe not flip a switch, but... You know, it's it's like when new technology comes out for cars. Within a couple of years, all the manufacturers are using it. Uh, once backup cameras, for a very, very simple populist version of yeah. this, once backup cameras sort of became an accessible technology, they're just standard issue on all cars now. Um, so what is it in the the research community and the, the biotech and all of that communities that's potentially preventing that switch from getting thrown, so to speak? That's a that's a really really good question, and and it's actually one one I'm asked a lot, and and one I've asked many times, and and many scientists I know have asked many times, why is biomedical research different to possibly every other area of science and engineering? Where, as you say, 
um, technological leaps are embraced and taken up and developed and used and have money thrown at them and and and, and off they go. You, there's no looking back. Why is biomedical science different and sticking with the old ways and the old ways that have so many drawbacks, ethical and scientific? And I think I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, in many other areas of science and engineering, these breakthroughs. Um, mean money. Um, you know, if you can do something, if you can make a better car or a better television, or if you can make aeroplanes more fuel efficient or, or, or whatever, then there's money in that because people, the, the general public are going to want that. They're going to want to buy that. They're going to want to buy into that. Biomedical sciences is, is different because, um, well, there's, there's a number of factors at play. Firstly, um, firstly, there's money. There's still a lot of money in animal research. The people who are breeding the animals, in the case of monkeys even, trapping the animals, breeding the animals, exporting them, selling them. The people who are selling the, the equipment, the, you know, the laboratory equipment for animal research, the cages and so on and so forth. It's, you know, 200 million animals a year are used and that's huge business and people want to protect that business. There's also um, some hubris there. There's there's a lot of scientists who whose careers have been spent using animals uh, in in you know in uh, in using a particular animal model. There's expertise there. There's publications there, and and it's human nature to um, you know we're not improving the animal models. What we're saying is those animal models are poor science. In many ways, they're wrong. You should do something else. And it's human nature not to take that lying down for many people. It, it's not good to, to feel that you're wrong or, or in any way you've been wasting your time. There's fear. Um, certainly, if you look at the, the kind of regulatory arena in, in, let's say, the pharmaceutical industry, and when they're developing new drugs, it's the regulator's job to make sure that they think those new drugs are going to be as safe uh, and effective as possible. If they change things, even if it seems like good science, if they change things and then something goes wrong, and something would go wrong because we're still using models, it's just that we would be using better models than, than we're currently using in, in the animals. But if something goes wrong, there's legislation, there's lawsuits, there's, you know, people, people are in trouble and they're going to have to say why they didn't use animals and why they used human specific methods. So, um, so there's fear of change, uh, fear, you know, fear of, of, of litigation, there's, there's habit, there's hubris, there are established phenomena called um, institutional and personal lock-in. So you, you, you know, whole research institutions, universities, uh, scientific groups, individual scientists themselves become locked into a way of doing things. It's what they know, it's what they used to, it's where their reputation is, it's just what they want to do. Some scientists don't want to learn a whole new way of doing things. So therein lie the differences between this area of science and the other areas of science and medicine that immediately benefit from gradual improvements in, in technologies that you can bring on board and make things that are better that people will want to buy. So that's that's the difficulty. That's what we're fighting against. And that's why to, to use the title of a, a panel that I, I sat on a few weeks ago that I mentioned earlier, that's why good or better science isn't enough to make this change happen. We need more than that. And um, consensus really seems to be um, along two lines. First of all, we have to give 
everyone involved more than enough confidence, more confidence than they actually need in these methods to feel good about taking that leap of, of embracing these new, new methods of using them, of doing this new science. The confidence has to be imparted and, and engendered. And the other thing um, just comes down to money. When people realize that that's where the money is, that there's money to, to, to develop these methods even more, that there's uh, money in, in selling them, that there's money available to do research using these methods, then that's where, that's where the uptake and the, and the confidence will come from. Um, but, you know, when, we're not under any illusions that this is, is going to be an easy change to try and, and expedite and accelerate because, because it isn't. However scientifically valid that change is, however urgent and, and clear the need to do that is this, is, this is going to be difficult for all the reasons I've already mentioned. But more people than ever believe in the need for that change, and that's that's going to help. And ultimately, uh, there are enough of us who want to try and do the right thing as quickly as possible. And you know, if you feel you're doing the right thing, um, then you just get your head down and do it. And and that's what we're doing. But you know, just to finish the point, it's that's one thing I have noticed in the last couple of years, particularly, is the not just the number of people, the number of stakeholders, the number of scientists and doctors and researchers involved, not just the number of people who are getting more and more on board to any degree with this, uh, which, it, which is very pleasing to see, but the number of people willing to really work hard to make it happen. So that's a, that's a real positive. And, you know, at some point we're going to hit, hit a critical mass and it will become it's already becoming a, a little bit more normal, a little bit less out there. You know, you're not, you're not a maverick anymore if you're, if you're doing and, and, and espousing these sorts of methods. This is, this is now mainstream, and I think it will hit a critical mass, and it, it really will take off, and, and the sooner the better. We can certainly hope it's taking off uh, already, and I think we do see some of that. It's something being talked about more. And I, I wanted to talk, this is a, a bit of a wacky question, and you can shoot me down immediately if need be. <laughs> is there concern? You're talking about confidence within the industry, within academia and research. Is there a concern that from a consumer point of view, confidence also has to grow? And I say that as I look at headlines about Purdue Pharma paying out uh, like $8 billion in a settlement over opioid sales. Um, and we have QAnon somehow rising up. And with all of the talk about seasonal flu and COVID and all this, the ongoing concerns about vaccines. Um, is there concern or do you think this would actually maybe have the opposite result in getting more consumer buy-in to pharmaceutical and medical science? Yeah, um, I think I, I think there's both, uh, and and I think it's understandable. You you'll always get people who who are more cautious and more wary um, and a, a little bit more resistant to change, and who might see see the negative sides of things more than the positive. And you'll also have people who are optimistic and pro-change to the point of almost being reckless. You know, you you always get a, yes. a spectrum of human attitudes and behaviour. But what I would say is, uh, and again, just from a scientific perspective, um, many people appreciate that, you know, unless you're experimenting on real life human beings, 
you are using models. You are you are, and all models have have um, pitfalls, have have imperfections, and we and and a lot of people appreciate that. So the critical point is, and this is this is really where science hasn't been very scientific in the past. You have to compare the two approaches and you have to say, okay, where are we with the animal models? Where, how predictive are they? Where do they fall down? Can they jump through the hoops that they should be able to jump through? And when we compare these with, with the human specific methods, again, what are their pitfalls? Are there fewer pitfalls than, than with the animal models? Are the human specific methods really more human relevant and human predictive than using a mouse or a rat or, or, or a dog or a monkey. So you have to compare the two. And as many people have said, although this hasn't necessarily been put into practice, all you need when you're looking at this is for the human specific methods to be as good or as bad as the animal methods. And you use the human methods because, the, because you don't have you don't have the welfare implications, you don't have the ethical issues of causing pain and suffering and death to hundreds of millions of animals every year. You are using human cell cultures. So they only have to be, they only have to be on a, a level with the animal models. So, um, so I think many people accept that, you know, these aren't gonna be perfect, but they're better. They're already better. There's evidence that they're better. So use them because they're better and then if, you know, if someone comes along and says, well, your human specific methods said that this drug would be safe and effective and it caused some issues in, in, in a certain number of people, the right thing to do then is to look back at when we were using animals to predict human responses and to say, well, when we were using animals, more than nine out of 10 drugs failed in clinical trials, in human trials that can in no way be dressed up as good science or as a successful approach. And of the fewer than one in 10 drugs that did make it through clinical trials to market, quite often those drugs had warnings put on them. They had their use restricted because again, of problems with safety and efficacy not seen in animal models. Um, and some of them were withdrawn from market for the same reason. So the animals really weren't doing the, the you know, the animal centric approach really wasn't doing a very good job at all. So all you should really have to do is to be able to prove that the, the new approach you're using is better. And there's another point I'd like to make, which is you can't really improve an animal-based approach to any significant degree. Uh, even if it's genetically modified, if it's had one or two of its genes tweaked to make it uh, more human relevant or, or less human irrelevant than it was, you're still dealing with a rat or a mouse or a dog or a monkey. And so there's only, there's nothing you can really do to improve that model. Whereas with the human advanced cell culture methods, the organoids, the organs and bodies on a chip and everything else I, I've spoken about, they are being constantly improved. Their human physiological relevance is constantly improving from uh, certainly year to year, if not month to month. So there's, you know, we can always work to make those even better and, and ever improving. So I think um, all you have to do is accept that they're models, that they will not be perfect, but have the confidence in the fact that they can be as good as, to, when, when used together, they can be as good and as predictive and as reliable as any model can possibly be. And I think when we when we get our heads around that, when, when more people get their heads around that point, 
then we will have less fear and more confidence. And, and again, that, that critical mass, that critical point I talked about will come along and it will come along uh, much more quickly. Well, and I think the reality to a degree is as well. I mean, there's a 90% failure rate at just about every open mic night I've been to and people still crowd into those at bars. <laughs> so I do think the public is maybe a little more accepting of that than we, we think right off the top. Uh, I, I want to ask, and I don't know if you can speak to this. I have had a few people tag me in things, and, and I'm sure you experience it, but we all experience this on social media when people know what we do for a living and it involves animals. Yeah. Uh, it just everything involving an animal you get tagged in. But I did see a couple of posts about uh, uh, sharks being used in COVID vaccines yeah. uh, in some way. I, I'm not sure if this is part of the modeling, if this is part of the testing, or if it's an ingredient in a pharmacological solution. Uh, is that something you know about, and is that happening? I don't know a huge amount about it, but what I do know is that um, there's there's a there's a substance uh, in shark. I, I'm not sure if it's in the cartilage, possibly, or but there's a substance in sharks called squalene or squalene, however you want to pronounce it. People pronounce it differently. Um, and and sharks are, are full of it, and it's a it's a it's a product that is extracted from from sharks and and that is used. One of the things it's used for is uh, is is in vaccines. Now I I can't recall exactly what it does. It may be uh, some sort of um, uh, adjuvant or excipient, something you know, something that uh, that is important in that vaccine to to stabilize it to make sure it's it's immunogenic and that the vaccine does its job. But uh, what I do know is that there are other sources of squalene. You don't just get it from sharks. It can be made in, you know, in the lab. Uh, there, are, there are companies who synthesize that exact product. So I don't know if it's, if it's a, a scare story. I don't know if the vaccine manufacturers were intending to source it from sharks because it's, it's more plentiful and cheaper. Um, I, I really don't know the story behind that, and I, I'm, I'm going to read up on it when I, I finish speaking with you. But what I do know is that you know people have said, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, one that yeah, we need to make sure that this doesn't happen. You know, sharks are in trouble. We uh, many of us know that, and if there are alternative sources, which there are, we need to try and make sure that the vaccine manufacturers obtain that product from uh, from the you know the, the the right means from from the right sources and uh, and that they they leave endangered or, or at risk species alone yeah it it certainly had the feeling the the posts i was tagged in i would not be surprised if they were the end result of a bit of an internet game of telephone um of it starting out as hey fyi you know as we're talking about vaccines we need to be talking about what squalene is and then it evolved somehow into this is going to happen, um, which is is quite common. Uh, and, and as a former journalist, makes the back of my brain and eyeballs itch, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, I, 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 I'm with you on this. I, I, think, uh, I think it's right to have a healthy degree of cynicism about anything you read and, and ask mm -hmm. the questions and be critical. Think critically. I, I think... Uh, I, I think it's something that society would be much better off for if if, if more people continue to, to to think critically. Um, but it's uh, you know there there is there there is often no smoke without fire. Um, and if this has at least made the vaccine manufacturers 
think twice before they use a, um, a shark source of squalene uh, and get it mm -hmm. from uh, from a more sustainable, uh, more humane source, then um, then that's great. You know, it, it's that that attention to the matter has done its job, and and hopefully, hopefully, that's what will happen. Uh, and I do want to play, and I hate saying devil's advocate, but the predictive uh, internet uh, realities, I'm trying to think of a proper way of saying this, uh, jerks on the internet are going to read this and say, yeah, but what about, um, which leads to a fun segment. Yeah, but what about cancer um, or something like that? It, I, I, I imagine there is very quick and easy opposition from people saying, yeah, well, I'd much rather a mouse be tested on than a person if it's going to cure my mom's yes. cancer. Um, it's a very boiled down, merely straw man argument, I think. But it is one I have seen frequently when I have either shared this kind of content personally or, or covered it in my, uh, in my podcast here or in other areas. What is the... I don't I want to say the best way. What is your response, though, when, when we end up with what I will call a populist view um, of this, where people try and boil it down to very, very simple points, ignoring the context and the yeah. nuance? How do we get away from that back to, you know what, this little organ on a chip will save your grandma someday or could. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it, it, it is an argument I've heard a lot of times over the years in interviews and debates, uh, you know, with with people who support animal research and so on. Um, it, it's really it, it's a hypothetical argument. Um, and, you know, what I said to people who've, who've tried that argument before is to say, yeah, well, it's, you know, if it is a, it's not actually a case of a mouse or your child. What we need to do is get to the bottom of what is the best way to make sure that we, our children, our families and friends aren't going to suffer from these diseases that we all fear. And that if we do, science and medicine can do something about it. And there are treatments and cures for those. What is the best way? And, and it really is as simple as that. And the best way, the best science that is going to, to make sure we understand those diseases and we can prevent and treat and cure them is human-specific research. All of the evidence is there, not just a, as we've mentioned about how poor the animal models are, how poorly they, they translate to human biology and human disease, but how much better and more human relevant, how much quicker and cheaper the human-specific methods are. But also, you know, if, if you want to... To, to keep an eye on that particular argument, you can say, well, you know, if it's a case of your child or something else, most people would accept, uh, you know, most people would say, I would rather it was next door's child than my child. You know, this is a very, a very difficult, very emotive subject and, and, and a very extreme situation. Um, people will do anything to protect, uh, you know, those they love, particularly their children. So to say that you would sacrifice a mouse to save your child, is, it, 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 it's, it's a strange concept. It's, it doesn't have any, any basis in, in reality, really. Um, and I think what I would go back to is the fact that 200 million animals a year are still being used in scientific research and very, very little human benefit is coming from that. Uh, and to the point where the animal models are so misleading that you know, we're, we're losing lots of opportunities to do good for humans. We're, we're, we're going down dead ends and we're, being, uh, you know, we're using animal data that are misleading. 
all of that time and effort and money could be spent on better, more predictive, more human-specific methods. So we're actually doing ourselves a disservice, not just the animals, by not really critically thinking and looking and making sure that we're doing the best science we, we, we possibly can. Um, so I think I think that's important that that actually we're sacrificing 200 million animals a year, many of them in, in, in pretty awful ways, and we're not really getting much out of it at all. You know, we're still struggling to understand so many human diseases. We are still floundering looking for new for new drugs and treatments and cures uh, for many, many uh, diseases and disorders we really do need to do something else. And one more point I, I would like to make that uh, that's allied with this is that, um, so for example, there's just been a paper published um, that showed, uh, they looked at, at some animal experiments that had been approved and conducted uh, in the Netherlands. And they found out only 26% of the animals that, uh, that were used, many of whom will have suffered and, and died in those experiments, only one in four of those animals was involved in any research that was later published in a scientific journal. Three quarters of them, the science was so poor, so negative, so uh, useless in so many ways that it wasn't even published. And I think I think that's a pretty stock statistic. And that also, just to, to, to finish off, um, that was in the same journal, BMJ Open Science, as a paper I had published this week that looked at the UK national press uh, in 1995 uh, and uh, looked for animal research that was being directly linked in those national newspaper articles to human benefit. And I followed them up 20 plus years later to see if any human benefit had transpired from those really high profile animal research protocols. Only one of the 27 had resulted in human benefit and even that was with caveats and 26 of the 27 hadn't. So these are just small snapshots that actually underline and, and go right alongside the bigger picture and, and bigger, um, bigger examples of evidence that show, look, animal research isn't working. Animal data isn't human relevant. Very rarely is it human relevant. Even if you think it is, there's always some difference there waiting in the genetic or or biological pathways waiting to trip you up. Some gene expression difference, some protein difference, some difference in pathology, some difference in anatomy, some difference that's gonna trip you up. What we can't do as scientists is say that this is good science, that this is successful science, that this is necessary when it's falling down so many places and there's nothing we can do to make it any better. We have to do something else. You know, it's, it's, the old, it's the old saying about stupidity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different outcome. That's exactly what's going on um, with biomedical research using animals. We have to do something else. It just so happens that there's something else we can do. There are so many options and they're amazing, high tech, cutting edge, kind of almost science fiction that we can do now. You know, we can grow, just to go back to it, we can grow mini human hearts and lungs and brains and all sorts. We can, we can make human bodies to some degree on a chip. Uh, the gene expression is, is very physiologically relevant. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the anatomy, the biochemistry, the metabolism is all physiologically relevant and it's all human specific. Why on earth is there so much reticence 
to adopt these methods to a degree that they need to be adopted? Why is there so much fear? Why is there so much intransigence? And that's what we at, at the Center for Contemporary Sciences are desperate to address and change. Awesome. And I've got two quick questions for you, including one request. Uh, one, organ on a chip. I've been looking at this picture on your website on my secondary screen. So I've got I've got all my gear sort of set on my laptop and I've got a secondary screen with notes and stuff. And I've been looking at this trip chip and it's organ on a chip and it doesn't make sense to me. And I don't want to spend time on that. So I'm going to ask if there's a video we can send people to look at this thing and understand how it works. I think that yeah. would be very interesting. You know, there are some there are some amazing companies that are attracting, and I think this is where some of the confidence comes from. Some of the companies that have been involved, and, and the academic groups that have kind of spun out into biotech companies. I mean, there are there are hundreds, if not thousands, of them now around the world. That should give you confidence. In uh, venture capitalists and investors are investing billions of dollars and pounds in these companies and in these technologies now that should give us confidence this is undoubtedly the future of science the future of biomedical research so what we don't want to do is look back in in 10 or 15 years time and think i wish we'd really done this earlier when we had the chance to that's that that would be that that would be very sad indeed but that should give us a lot of confidence so to answer your question um what I can do is, you know, look at look at some of the big companies in in North America. So you're looking at, at places like uh, companies like Emulate, like the Vs Institute, WYSS. Uh, there are there are other companies. And what I'll do is um, actually there's there's an overview uh, of some of these technologies that I wrote on the Center for Contemporaries website. If you have a look, if you look through that interview, there there are some links to these companies, and you will be able to to find. Uh, you know, them really showcasing their technologies, how they're being used, what they're discovering, what, you know, how powerful they are and what they can do. Um, so, so that's what I'd recommend. Have a look, have a look at that. Click on some of the links. It's it, what some of the big companies, the major players in these technologies are doing and, and prepare to be amazed and astounded. It, it really is incredible. It, it's very Star Trek looky. Uh, which I enjoy. I mean, I don't understand the science, but I like the way it looks. Uh, so that should count yeah. for something. Um, two, so two final quick questions. Um, one, I'm going to ask first and then ask the other question because I think it'll be upsetting to some people. So the first one is those who want to get involved, those who think that what you're doing is the best way forward and I want to throw my support behind you. What do people do to get involved with Center for Contemporary Sciences? In well, well, we would love that. And, you know, what we're trying to do is, is, is connect with as many people in as many different areas as we can. So not, not just academic researchers and scientists, not just the biotech companies, not just the investors, not just the, the regulators, not just the charities and the funders of research. But change is also going to come um, from a, a, a political uh, side of things. So, um, you know, we're, we're planning on working along those lines, too, and speaking with, with legislators. And one important thing with that is to, is to get the public interested and knowledgeable about what's going on. So one thing I've always said is, please have a look. Have a look at our website. Have a look at, at uh, 
other places our website will take you to, as I've just mentioned, some of the companies doing this. Uh, and don't be phased by the, you know, by the Star Trek science. There's a lot of really nice, simple explanations for those who aren't scientists on there that will help you understand what's going on, the power of these methods, and why we really urgently need to, to make a shift towards the greater adoption and use of, the, of these methods. So, and because once you're, once you're informed and educated and, and you know some of this, you're then in a position to approach your legislators, your approach your representatives, approach politicians, approach government and say, this is what I want to see uh, with, you know, this is the type of research that I want to see done with my tax dollars, with my charitable donations. If you're, um, you know, if you're doing a, a sponsored run or something or raising money for, for a charity, you let's say Parkinson's disease, heart disease, something like that, it's really important to let them know that you don't want your donations used for animal research because either you are uh, ethically opposed to it and or you don't think it's particularly good science and encourage the people who are funding some of the, the animal-based methods to switch their funding to more human-specific methods. And it's, it's by pressure like this on the funders of the research and the, the politicians who have the power to change things from informed members of the public that that will really, really help, uh, hugely help what we're trying to achieve and, and we'll all benefit from that. I think that kind of communication is so important. Another, you know, great example of that was um, uh, the the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Uh, when I did that a few years back and sent in a donation, I requested, I said, if you were doing animal science or science, uh, if you were testing on animals or contributing to science that tests on animals, I would prefer my donation be switched to local supports in community. Um, yes. And that was my way of saying, like, I'm still participating. I'm doing this for someone who means something to me. So I'm participating, yeah. but I am communicating that I don't want this and I do want that. And I'm just one person, but you're right. If you get a dozen people doing that for all of these kinds of things, I think pretty quickly we can start to see some change. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I think, you know, charities, uh, funders, funders of research uh, exist, exist with, you know, for money. It, it's what they do. They need to pay their own bills. They need to run their own groups uh, and they, they need to be seen to be funding research. Uh, and they they have uh, an obligation to listen to their supporters and, and to do what their supporters want them to do and to not do what many of their supporters don't want them to do. One thing I'd say, um, I've always used, uh, this may sound crazy, but it's, I've always used um, kind of cab drivers, taxi drivers as a as a barometer of, of, of kind of public knowledge. Um, so if I've been traveling to and from a conference or a meeting, uh, you know, quite often someone will say to you, where are you going or where have you been? And I'll say, I'm, you know, I'm off to a meeting on, on this and I'm going to talk about this. It, um, even, even now with the internet and news and di different sorts of news uh, sources and all sorts of things, a huge number of people really don't know the full details of what uh, scientific research involves, of how many animals are used, what types of animals are used, of how much suffering is involved, what's done to the animals. And when they do know, polls uh, in, in North America and in, in Europe consistently show that the majority of people are, are so uncomfortable about this that they will not support that research, even if, hypothetically, that research was going to benefit humans. Because people just feel 
and rightly feel that there must be a better way of doing this. And we need to, so we need to inform the people who don't know, the taxi drivers who didn't know, for example, that dogs and monkeys are used in research, the taxi drivers I've spoken to who had no idea that you could grow mini human organs in a dish and that they, they experimenting with these mini human organs really told you an awful lot about actual human organs and actual human beings in healthy human beings in human beings with disease and and, and in testing drugs and and so on and so forth so um so that that's what i would say is is that you know we 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 are aware that we don't just have to reach out to the next generation of scientists and enthuse them and excite them about tomorrow's science and what they can do and why they should be part of it. We also are, uh, are very keen and see the need to, to educate the public, to let them know what's going on on, on both sides of this animal and, and human specific science, why we need to change and what they can do to, to inform themselves and come from a position of strength and to put pressure on those who fund the science, the charities, and politicians who have the power to change all of this, they can put pressure on them and make sure that, um, you know, as I said before, the good, better science isn't quite enough. It should be, but it isn't quite enough. It's going to take time. So the way to push this is by is by education and is by uh, polite, informed pressure on people who do have the power to change things. And, and we shouldn't underestimate the importance of that. I wanted to finish on a question about uh, coronavirus and COVID testing, vaccines, etc. This is one that I thought could be upsetting some people who may not want to hear the information, which is why I wanted to put it at the end. Um, in the little bit of reading of actual studies I've done on uh, coronavirus, it has typically been on the the pet aspect of it. We're trying to understand, particularly from our point of view, how it's affecting mink. Uh, we clearly have a lot of crossover with dogs and cats and wildlife like bats. So I've been doing reading on those subjects. And in almost every case, in almost every case, there has been uh, animal testing, Uh in order to find out how the vaccine or how the coronavirus is impacting cats or dogs, they take four or five cats and spray coronavirus into their lungs or into their face and then see what the end results are. Is there another way when we're looking at this kind of science, when we're trying to understand how is this virus impacting other living creatures and how is it impacting humans? Yeah not even necessarily as part of the vaccine process, but simply as the, the process of um, we want to see if we, you know, what this will do. We need to know the limits of this illness. Um, can we look to this other technology for solutions or are we still stuck giving the virus to living beings to see what happens? Well, that, that's another really, really good question. Um, and, you know, what it what it brings into play is an argument that that I've often heard from people um, supporting animal research that I've, I've debated in the past. They've tried to, to defend it by saying, well, actually, animal research benefits animals, too. And of course, that opens up a huge uh, philosophical can of worms about, uh, you know, sacrificing or, or inflicting suffering on a small number of one species to benefit greater numbers of one species. It's not something to accept in humans, particularly. And uh, so arguably, it's not something we should do with animals um, either. But my point has always been that we don't have to do that. Uh, and there's a number of reasons why we don't. Uh, so firstly, there is, just as there is human clinical research, and I think it's important to, to realize that 
you know, many human beings are are very selfless, uh, you know, very, very amazing individuals. There are so many people who are happy to volunteer to be part of clinical studies. It's always astounded me, even if those studies might inconvenience them, might cause them some pain and 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 you know um, and discomfort. People are still happy to help other human beings by being part of clinical research. And and one example I'll give of that is um. I, you know, when I was debating people, they would always say, we need to study single brain cells and we can only do that in monkeys because we can't do it in humans. Well, that's not true. Um, hundreds, if not thousands of, of studies on living human beings on single brain cells have been done. And they've been done in people that have been undergoing brain surgery who have volunteered to be part of research projects and have small electrodes put into their brains. Now that's that's incredible. I'm, I'm, I can't say it's something necessarily I think I would do, I, I don't know. But I've been astounded by by the courage of people volunteering for that. So, so there's not a shortage of human volunteers for clinical research. The point that that brings into play is that clinical research in animals, in veterinary clinics, is really, really important too. And we can do that, and we can do that very carefully at, at little or no risk to, to animals in, in veterinary clinics. And that's a very important part of veterinary medicine. But on top of that, and there are a couple of reasons for this, we can culture uh, cells from, and do culture um, cells and, and organoids, these little mini organs I've been talking about, advanced cell and tissue culture. We can do that here for mouse cells, rat cells, dog cells, monkey cells, and so on and so forth, just as we can uh, for human cells. Uh, and in fact, researchers, because of some researchers, because of their cautious nature, have been asking the companies that do this for human cells and tissues to also do it for animal tissues. And they've only been asking for that for one reason. That's what they've always done. They've always used the rat or the mouse or the dog or the monkey. They want, they're comfortable with doing that. They're comfortable with using data from those animals and they want to continue to, to do that. Even if that's just as a kind of alongside a comparative nature while they make the shift to doing human research. So the point is the ability to do this to benefit animals does exist. And, you know, we can go down exactly the same lines with carefully regulated uh, uh, clinical research for animals and, um, you know, using advanced cell and tissue cultures for animals as, as we are advocating for human beings. There's always a humane way to do science and to do research. We don't have to take the easy option, which is to buy a few cats or dogs from a supplier and do things to them that would horrify us if, if we saw that in the street. To read more about the Centre for Contemporary Sciences, visit contemporarysciences.org. Links to Dr. Bailey's study, Clinical Impact of High-Profile Animal-Based Research Reported in the UK National Press, are available in this week's show notes and at thefurbears.com. During our interview, Dr. Bailey and I discussed squalene and whether sharks are at greater risk due to the drive to find COVID-19 vaccines. Post-interview, we both stumbled across a New York Times article that noted, in summary, while squalene is used in some medications, it is far more commonly used in cosmetic products. Further, squalene is not the primary driver in the killing of sharks from which it is taken. 
While it remains a conservation concern, there is no current evidence that suggests a massive uptick in shark killings for squalene due to COVID-19 will occur. A link to that article is also available in the show notes. I really want to thank Dr. Bailey for his time. We had a great conversation, and I look forward to his and the Center for Contemporary Science's future work. For advocates and those curious about biomedical research and vivisection-related issues in Canada, I recommend checking out the Canadian Society for Humane Science at forhumanescience.org. There's a whole lot going on in the world right now, and I hope that all of you listening are able to take some time to breathe, feel, and use self-care skills to your advantage. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong.